Now, uh, while this is a challenging topic, I'm really glad and relieved that Jesus invites us into a deeper insight into adultery and lust, and really importantly, how we should respond to them. Our own culture often trivializes these issues, uh, but we know this is really important. Uh, and uh, you may have spotted in the reading that the majority of what Jesus says here is underlining how catastrophically damaging lust can be and what radical action might be required of us. Uh, but we need to read this passage in the light of the, the overall teaching of the Bible. And in the Bible, it's absolutely and completely beyond doubt that marriage is a gift from God and that the companionship that it affords and the compassion that is shared within it and the potential to have a family and to have a home where you invite people, where you're a welcome port in the storm for others. And also the gift of sexual intimacy as a mutually enriching experience, something that creates and then feeds and nourishes a bond between husband and wife. All of those things are God's gift to us, and we need to remember that. The second thing is marriage is portrayed throughout the Bible as something that's really important. It has substance. It should be exclusive. It should be lifelong, as our marriage service puts it. When we marry people here, uh, at the start of the service, I say, both to the couple getting married and to everybody who's here, uh, that marriage should not be undertaken carelessly, lightly, or selfishly, but reverently, responsibly, and after serious thought. So if you look at verse 27 of our passage, you'll see that this passage, if you were here last week, starts in a very similar way to how last week started. Uh, so Jesus begins, you've heard it said, and this time he quotes the seventh commandment, the seventh out of the ten commandments, and that is, you shall not uh, commit adultery. Now Jesus has absolutely no problem uh, with this commandment, no issue with it, uh, far from it. But if you were here last week, you'll remember that with murder, what Jesus does is he, he sort of widens the bite point of the commandment. So that when we read the commandment, do not murder, we need to expand what that means to understand that murder begins in the human heart. And it begins in the ways that we ridicule and hate and, uh, we, and the anger that sort of boils up in us. Those are the starting points. And so we need to be aware and alive to those things, as well as just saying, I'm not going to be a person who murders people. In the same way, Jesus widens our understanding of adultery. So what he's saying here is that adultery is not just the physical act of being sexually intimate with someone who's not our husband or our wife. It's also something that we can do in our head and in our heart, and you know this. Uh, you know that we can undress someone in our own mind and fantasize how it would feel to be sexually intimate with them. We can dream about how another person will appreciate us 
and love us and fulfill us sexually when we feel that our own spouse does not. And we can learn uh, to see other people, people who are made in God's image. We can learn to see them not as people made in God's image, but as objects of our own lust and desire, enslaving them to our selfish and our short-sighted sexual needs. So Jesus is saying that there is more to adultery than actually having sex with someone who we're not married to. There are 101 ways we can be emotionally and psychologically unfaithful at thinking ourselves into the arms of another. 101 ways in which we can fantasize lustfully about other people. But the most surprising thing about this short passage is that Jesus devotes most of his time not to this new understanding of adultery, but to underlining the radical action we should take if we find that our hearts and our minds are feeding on lust. And then we realize that we are dwelling on the ways that someone else might fulfill, excite, or love us. The two images he uses are, one, gouge out your eye. Secondly, cut off your hand. And with both of those, he says, it's better to be maimed than to be in hell. Now, this is, of course, where so many 21st century people part company with Jesus. And they say, it's too morbid. It's too negative. It's just encouraging self-hatred. Surely, there's a better way to be. And we're just going to spend the rest of our time tonight trying to answer that question. Firstly, Bible commentators absolutely agree that when Jesus says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, he's not being literal. He's using forceful and vivid pictures. And they're pictures to make a point. And the point is that sexual purity and faithfulness are beautiful things. So this passage is part of the Bible's resounding yes to the incomparable, joyful, heart and soul strengthening wonder of sexual intimacy. And this is part of the Bible's firm no to cheap love and debasing other people and hypocrisy and being selfish with our own sexual appetites. These are really strong ways to say adultery of any kind, whether it's real or imagined, corrode and spoil us as people. They seep into our souls. They change the way that we see others. They do something deeply wrong and broken inside us. And so the battle to learn self-control is always worth it. And Jesus is saying some of the action that you may need to take, it will feel serious and radical. It might even feel drastic. It would be like being asked to gouge out an eye or cut off a hand. Part of the Christian response to this passage is to honestly recognize our own vulnerabilities and set ourselves some simple guidelines, and we'll come back to that in a second. 
Secondly, the reason that Jesus uses such strong and vivid language is that the wonderful gift of sexual intimacy is such a fiercely powerful experience. Even guilty, adulterous sex can feel amazing in the moment. And so such a powerful appetite and capacity with which we are gifted needs to be protected and nurtured, needs to be honored. Just because sex is such a powerful and wonderful experience, we need to take strong measures to relish it in the right place and to run from it in the wrong place. And the vivid imaginations we have are a gift, a gift from our Creator God. But that means that we will have to learn that self-control means control over how we see other people as well as what we look at. But thirdly, we shouldn't confuse feeling tempted, on the one hand, having a sexual impulse, having a, a thought or an impulse or a feeling about a person. We shouldn't confuse that with what Jesus is talking about here, which is seeing them adulterously. And I'd like to explain what I think the difference is. And I want to quote uh, from a 16th century theologian called Martin Luther. Um, just, just bear with me on this image because it's actually really helpful. This is what he says. He says, we can't stop birds flying around our heads, but we can stop them nesting in our hair. Now, that may not have been a problem in your life, okay? But here's what I think he's meaning. You, you, you know, if you're outside and there's birds around the place and they, they're kind of flying around, you can't stop them doing that. But what you could definitely stop is a bird landing on your head and setting up home there and then going and getting twigs and starting building a nest in your head and then laying some eggs. And what he's saying is there is a difference between a fleeting thought about someone on the one hand, as compared to dwelling on that thought and giving time to that thought, nurturing it, feeding it, so that we give time to imagine the thrill or the safety or the comfort of being in the arms of another. We are not serving Jesus if we spiral into self-hatred every time we have a sexual thought or impulse. That is not what he is saying here. Our culture might taunt us with the accusation that what Jesus is encouraging here is self-loathing. Let me tell you, after 30 years of doing what I'm doing, I know the people that experience self-loathing. And let me tell you who they are. They are firstly people whose lives are saturated in pornography. There is few deeper levels of self-loathing than uh, people who who's, have just been taken over by an addiction to porn. That's where self-loathing lies. And then there are, there are the people who've been in relationships with people who are addicted to porn or who have been uh, the objects of their affections and their interests and have been forced to do things that they really, really, really have not wanted to do 
That's where self-loathing can grow. What Jesus is saying is that when we spot these thoughts, these impulses, or a fixation on a person, what we should do is to bat them away and to replace them with something else rather than feed them and give them time and give them energy. Now, I want to be honest with you as we finish. Things are way harder for you as a congregation. You are going to have to be more courageous and more radical than my generation ever was. When I was in my teens, the path to see porn was either to steal from a friend's dad, who might have a stash under their bed, or to steal it from the hairdresser or the newsagent. That's how you got porn when I was growing up in Bristol. Both of those took forethought and planning and carried high risk. For you, one click and you're in. Now, I know that uh, many of you are really curious about and thirsty for sexual intimacy. But let me tell you that porn is the very, very, very worst way to learn about good sex. Porn makes you a terrible lover. It really, really does. The best possible way to prepare for a fulfilling future sex life is these things. Practice being generous. Practice self-control. Practice forming deep friendships with other people and get right with God. I absolutely promise you, hand on heart, those are the very best ways to prepare for a possible future sex life. Thankfully, we see in the Me Too movement all the evidence we need that our sexual culture is almost completely broken. And in particular, our culture in the West at this time is not working for women. Our current sexual culture works extremely well for a few rich men and for people who want to make a lot of money. And it doesn't work for anybody else. Practically speaking, my fatherly advice would be as follows. Don't, don't date anyone who's into porn. It should be a red flag, and you should just walk away from anybody that you're aware of as you grow into a relationship uh, who is consuming lots of pornography. Secondly, young women hear from us here, it is not acceptable at all, ever, to be coerced into any sexual activity. It is not okay to be choked or strangled. It is not okay to be made to do things that make you cry. It is not okay to be asked for uh, nudie selfies. And please hear this. Being desired, being desired, is not the same as being respected. And being respected is way better. Young men, you are knee-deep in a culture that expresses masculinity as dominating women, as suppressing and hurting women, 
as belittling women. Young men, porn stars are the worst guides to great sex on the planet. I read this week that one-third of young men in Western Europe now have a problem getting an erection in real life because porn has emasculated them. They've been trained by porn to see sex as a spectator sport, to be enjoyed alone or in front of a screen. And it actually means that they can't uh, really be lovers of real women. What a terrible irony that, that is. And for all of you, the best people to talk to about great sex are your grandparents. Okay? I dare you. I dare you. They've seen it all. They've heard it all. That generation had fantastic sex. Okay? They are absolutely honest, reliable guides. It's too embarrassing to talk to your own parents, right? But your grandparents, absolutely fantastic. Jesus forces us to make some tough decisions. And so, I want to, as we close, just speak to a number of people. Firstly, if you have been the object of someone's lust, if you've been spoilt or chased or harassed, then you need to know it is not acceptable. And you need to know that it's absolutely right to stand up for yourself. And you need to know that you go no further with anybody that behaves in that kind of way. It is not acceptable. And you need to know that within this community, you will find people who will understand and help. And that does not need, those experiences, does not need to ruin things forever. Secondly, you need to remember what Jesus says about this, that because sex and sexual intimacy between husband and wife is such a great and a good gift, there are places where it thrives, but there are many places where it doesn't. And to give ourselves over to lust and to learning to think about other people simply as sexual objects for our own gratification spoils us and ruins us. And when we sense that happening, what we should do is to take radical action, action at the time that will feel as drastic as gouging out an eye with a spoon or cutting off your hand with a, a saw. It's painful. The giving up of a relationship that you know is toxic and wrong is painful. Turning your back on a porn addiction desperately painful. But it's the better way. Lastly, there is in Jesus Christ forgiveness and new beginnings. I shouldn't think there's one person here who could hold up their hands and say, I am and I have always been sexually pure. None of us are. There is, in the gospel, 
There is in the wonder of Christianity always new beginnings. No condemnation. No being excluded from God's presence because of the things that we've got wrong or thought wrong or said wrong. And this beautiful service that we're taking part in now allows us to do something very powerful. Come to the front and either receive these tokens of bread and wine or to receive a prayer, possibly kneeling, possibly standing. It's just a way of saying, I hold on to forgiveness and I hold on to new beginnings. Amen.